Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. I'm sorry, you started it right as I was swallowing I know, my I'm water. So, sorry. so um, we really did take a walk today, and let it be known that it was me. It was me. It's me. It's me. Oh Lord, we started running, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not doing this today." <laughs> so abruptly, we were in the middle of the run. No, I don't want to do the this middle. today. Oh, that's <laughs> not true. The middle that's of true. The run it was at the all. beginning. Don't give me credit. Um, but it was, and then Yolanda started laughing so hard he choked, which I felt justified my laziness and lack of discipline. So anyway, it's all good. Yeah. So what is astonishing you, friend? On Sunday, I had the opportunity to thank the saints at Dorada Church for all of the calls and cards and offers to bring us food uh, while we were um, recovering from COVID. The congregation reached out to us in ways that were touching. I mean, people, they offered to do so much for us. I mean, they just really loved on our entire family and so very grateful for that and took great delight in thanking them for it. But then just yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a message, another pastor, another state, who has COVID, he and his wife, uh, they are both pastors and their daughter, they all have COVID, and his message asked, did your church reach out to you while you had COVID? I said yes, and shared the ways, and he said there's radio silence from yeah. my congregation, and it really just broke my heart for him because I know how much they love the congregation they serve and they are a bit confused yeah. by the um, the silence and I, I'm certainly not passing judgment on those uh, folks I don't know why there's silence but it, it reminds me once again that you know there are these boundaries that we yeah. have as pastors on the one hand we we don't expect the church to care for us. That's not their job, right? If I go to the doctor and I ask my doctor how she's doing, if she goes on you know, a long rant about what's happening in her life, that's, that's going to be really odd and awkward. And so we, we should not expect congregations to care for us. And yet, in the church, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are friends in Christ, there are times when it is when it is right and holy and Christ-like for the church to care for um, pastors and, and pastors' families. And so I experienced just a beautiful, warm, loving care of the saints at Dariah Church, and I'm just brokenhearted for my friend who is— like longing um, for the church that he and his wife serve to reach out to them, not in extravagant ways, but a simple, hey, how you feeling? How you doing? Yeah. I think it's so hard. It, it's so confusing because the extremes are so visible and unhealthy. Correct. So obviously there are churches that are centering the pastor and the pastor's family in a way that's really deferential and um, just un unhealthy. Like we do not and allow uh, folks to call us the first family. Oh, My yeah, wife refuses to be called first lady. She's like, that is just 
no, we're not doing that. Well, and I mean, and I understand the particular context that that can come from within the black church. And sure. so I'm not, I, I, I know that there's a, there's a historical context of providing honor to um, members of a community as a way of honoring the community as a whole. So I'm not even, I, I'm not really even speaking about that, but there's this, there's a one extreme is when the pastor's family is, is given sort of the best of everything as they're due. Um, so the pastor's words are become sort of proxy God words and, and honoring the pastor and the pastor's family becomes an, an expression of worship of God in ways that are just really, really gross and ungodly. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where the pastor, I think often in, a, in an attempt to overcorrect, the pastor functions as sort of a hired spiritual guide for An the employee. community. Right. And, and, and that employee needs to be sort of controlled and, um, you know, there's, there's no mutuality in it at all. And I think that, um, in our denomination, we've talked a lot before in an attempt to prevent bad things from happening. I think we've gone too far too too far away like I don't want anywhere near the centering of the pastor's family or whatever but I mean we've gone too far from the center um, to a place of saying like no you're the pastor you have a professional relationship with everyone in your congregation there's nothing personal about it you don't share your personal life you don't maintain relationships after you don't you know these are people are not your friends well if you tell people both pastors and members of the congregation that the pastor is not your friend and that the pastor is analogous to your spiritual doctor or your spiritual psychiatrist. And so you can, you know, then I understand why the congregation would have confusion about whether or not it's an appropriate thing to offer care to someone who you have been told that you need to offer sort of deference and separation and boundaries from. And that's why I think, you know, the, the problem is when we try to take something that is complicated and make it unnuanced, like the reality is, we have a particular role to play in our congregations, but every member of our church has a particular role to play. And some of those roles are more and less visible, but I don't believe that any of those roles are less honored or important in the eyes of God. So there are things that I have to offer to the congregation and how well and faithfully I offer them affects the culture and flourishing of the congregation. Um, and the same is true of every single person who is called by God to be in the congregation. They have gifts and um, work and wisdom to offer to the congregation and growth to offer to the congregation and how well and faithfully they offer that affects the flourishing of the congregation. And so I think to say, you and I as pastors carry dual roles, but so does everyone else in the congregation. And to say, you know, and it's odd, particularly in our Presbyterian branch of the body of Christ, because we literally are not members of our congregation. We are members of the presbytery. And again, I think that's supposed to help everyone discern this difference. Um, but I think it can set up this kind of faux elitism and sort of a professionalism that's derived from the world that's intended to separate 
that I think is really un- unhealthy. And it leads to moments like this when a congregation feels like it's inappropriate to offer human care to a pastor who is also a neighbor and a brother and sister in Christ and a friend. And so, I mean, I was talking about this the other day with someone about um, thinking about how in this hyper-capitalist productivity culture, it's really hard to know what is enough. And I was sharing the story of how hard it was for me in a sermon to announce that I do not work too hard for the church, that people always will come up to me. And and I think that, that what they're saying is, like, I love you and I respect what you're doing. So they'll say, you know, I know you're really busy, busy, but will you? And I'm like, I'm not too busy to do my job. And and being available to people in my congregation is my job. There's nothing more important than that. And But to say to them, like, if, I, if I'm full, whatever, I'm, I will say, hey, can I talk to you next week? But you're my priority, the Lord, and then you. Um, but to still to stand up in front of the congregation and say, I'm not too busy. I rest. I do not work too hard for this congregation. It feels scary. And I'm getting back to this. But I was saying, like, even as I discern, like, I don't know what enough is, like my understanding of work, what it means to work enough um, is just so warped because we live in this culture that says it's never enough, which is why I think it's really important as pastors that we figure out what enough is, because if we can model it in the context of what we do, then we give everyone in our congregation permission (laughs) to model it in the context of what they do. But I will say, Part of what makes it complicated is there's some of what I do in my congregation because I am the pastor and because the church has so graciously bought my time and freed me for this to be my work. And then there's some of what I do and give in the congregation that I do and give because I'm a human following Jesus and this is my community, right? And so as I calculate like what's enough, I factor that in, right? Because there's the work that I want to do because I want to serve faithfully and well in the part of my being in the church. That's my job. And then there's the part that I want to serve and give and show up in my congregation because I am a member of the congregation too. And sometimes it's difficult to tease out those two roles. And sometimes often the one affects the other and to pretend they don't doesn't make any sense. But I feel like we overcorrect in the PCUSA literally by telling people, you're the pastor, not a member of the community. And so when a member of the community gets COVID, the community says, oh, how can we help these people out? But when the pastor who's been told they're not a member gets COVID, people are like, oh, I hope they have some friends, which of course they don't because we don't encourage that and we <laughs> overfunction. But anyway, that's all to say. Like I'm, I am, I have a great deal of compassion for your friend. And I think that it's also just the product of a greater unhealth that's not just in that congregation, but which is in the body of Christ as a whole and our denomination particularly. And we need to rethink, like, what does it mean to walk this out? And it is complicated and trying to like come up with a fake, simple solution that's clear leads to this kind of woundedness of being like, I show up for other people and nobody shows up for me. And that stinks. And no wonder you can't flourish over a lifetime serving in congregations. And also I should just say, and I think we both agree with this, that's unusual, right? Like that is, that's very unusual. Very unusual. Because most, I will shut up after this, but one story I love so much, I met a woman who was a, a nun and then um, in New England, and then after a long time, um, left 
her vows and was teaching in a seminary and then got a got an opportunity to serve in a congregation and she was trying to discern do I want to do this do I want to be a pastor am I called to this is this for me and as in her discerning process she talked to a friend who said her name was Mary said oh Mary I hope that you will give yourself the opportunity to be loved like that Mm. and I think for me really in every church I've served that has been my opportunity that I have been so well loved by my congregations and I've loved them in turn, but they've loved me. And that has been such a great gift. And I do think that the majority of pastors, even if you're in a high conflict, even in an unhealthy church, there are just people who will love you so well. It's just the best, the best, the best, best thing. (laughs) So I'm sorry for your friend. Well, I'm holding out hope that this congregation will at some point be moved to care for their pastors. Like you said, this is just highly unusual. And so Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking maybe they're just having a moment to come to terms uh, with with the reality that their pastors have COVID. I don't know if they are um, anxious about their Mm -hmm. future as a congregation. You know, what if something really bad happens to our pastors and so they just may have this moment of of anxiety that is causing them to be stuck just for a moment so i'm still holding out hope that at some point they will express care but it's true that like you would want to look at this and say okay what is this an expression of in the culture of our church like what what does this mean just from a place of sincere curiosity and openness to say what not only what do we learn about the congregation, but what do we learn about ourselves as pastors? Like, where did this come from? And if this isn't what we expected, then then what can we learn about how to talk about that? Yeah. 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 Well, what's astonishing you? Um, well, two things. Two things. Um, so we just, you know, it's it is June, and it is the time of year where a lot of things happen all at once, especially. In my family, because there's five of us and we all have birthdays within two months. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's just a lot. So um, my this past weekend, my um, my middle daughter turned 13. My wow. youngest daughter had her dance recital. And then she graduated from kindergarten. And on Sunday, we had Pentecost. And we had new members joining the church. And so it was just a big, full, beautiful um just such a lot of celebrations. Just such a such a gift. So much altogether. Um, and I would just say the two things that I am just astonished by and so grateful, and just seeing the presence and indwelling and power of the Holy Spirit um, is one. Just um, the folks who joined the church on Sunday. Um, it's amazing to me. It's just amazing. And I don't ever want to stop being amazed by the fact that you know, all of these folks were people who got connected to our congregation during the pandemic. Um, wow. And so I just really want to notice how, just how much amb- ambiguity and discomfort those years were 
and how we just had to keep walking forward, trusting in the goodness of God and just being look being satisfied with today. Like, I don't know what the future holds, but today we have the ability to do these, to do this deeply meaningful work and to be in this community and, you know, let's really cherish it because it's true that we don't know what's on the other side. And, and, um, but the whole time that it was happening, I did just have this sense. And I think it had a lot to do with, I know it had a lot to do with just the deep ambiguity and uncertainty and pain of going through transformation and not having any expectation of goodness on the other side of transformation, like zero zip, zero zilch. I thought that the, the church was dying, that I was going to lose my job and I would never have a chance to pastor again. Like I just thought, you know, we're doing this work. It was never going to work. It it was going to just, we looked like fools and idiots and everyone was mad. And I, you know, it was going to be the end. And then to experience God being God all, all alone and not all at once. Um, but just this, this, you know, I mean, to steal Eugene Peterson's phrase, the long obedience in the same direction of just being able to say, I don't know what's happening and I don't really, I'm not optimistic, but I know what this next right thing to do is. And even though I can't do it very well, that's no excuse not to do it. And, and just to see how life completely unbelievably came in. And so then when we went through those pandemic years and it was just so, um, just everybody's plunged into the state of unknowing and, and relearning. And I just had this sense of like this, this could be the end of us. And also it could be the beginning of something wholly beautiful and new. Like uh, even in the midst of all of that loss, I just thought it's possible <laughs> that something really good is waiting for us on the other side of this, that there will be another side and something really good is waiting for us on the other side of it. And um, I didn't feel entitled to that. I didn't feel that we were guaranteed if we just believed hard. I mean, I didn't, I, I knew that no matter what waited for us on the other side, our cup overflowed. Um, but to see that, I mean, to see these families and people coming and, and joining the church and saying what's happening here is um, something that I want to be a part of is was just so astonishing just to remember all those months of sadness. And, um, and one of our elders, um, Charday, like we gather before worship just to introduce ourselves and, um, you know, we say like, there's no test. Like if you want in, you're in <laughs> So <laughs> zero standards here. Um, like the Lord welcomes anyone who says, you know, I want to be in. So, um, we have, but I said like, we want to gather because people have anxiety about like, why do you want to meet with me or what do I have to do to yeah. join? And mm-hmm. I want to say like nothing, you have to want to yeah. join. Right. That that's important. And you're we're thinking not, back to college and rush week. Right. And I think a lot of churches like, you know, both really want to, to show that they take discipleship seriously, not to show in many churches, they do take discipleship seriously. And so connecting certain discipleship experiences with membership is a way to incentivize people to do that. And I understand the sincerity of that connection. And I also just 
personally don't believe in it. Like, you know, Jesus said, come follow me. And people did. And they started where they were. And, you know, there was no like, let me see if you really understand. There was no, no sense of let's make sure people really understand or let's see if people are really committed. And and so anyway, so I'm always trying to tell people like, I want, I want you to come and meet with us before you join the church, but it's not for the purpose of evaluating you and seeing if you're worthy. It's so that we can meet one another um, and, and you can meet the other leaders in the church and just share a little bit of your story and make a connection. And so we, we were doing that on Sunday morning before worship and Charday, one of our elders um, said, you know, I just feel so called to be here. And, and she's such a good friend to me. And she's said, you know, I just, and I really love our pastor and I could tell she was about to say something about me. And so I was about to get really uncomfortable. And she was like, cause she's such a holy mess. And I was like, Oh, I'm very comfortable with someone saying that about me. And she said, cause that, and it gives me permission to be a holy mess. And I'm like, you know, I just, I mean, I know that that sounds like something that could be on a coffee mug. And so I get it, but also it is just so, I think, importantly true that that is what our Christian communities are. That is what it means to be a disciple is that you are just a mess and you are deconstructing and reconstructing and like things are passing away. You're in the process of becoming and it is just messy, 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 messy and vulnerable and nonlinear and organic and you have surges and slips and, and it is holy. And to say like, we are a community where people are a mess and it's holy. And we want to show that instead of, pretending that it's not happening here. And sometimes you need to be in a community for whatever reason where there's just less visible mess. And I don't judge that, but, and it's not that we're not trying to do things just beautifully and unto the Lord, because we sure are. And it is just a mess. And sometimes to do things well, I think faithfully means the mess becomes visible and that is holy. And so I was so grateful and I was like, you, I please, please always say that, like mm. all, you know, because I think people need to know as they enter into the community, I mean, obviously you're here because you see something beautiful about this and maybe you've already seen the mess and you've decided you're in anyway, or maybe, maybe you haven't seen the mess yet is coming. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I'm just, it's just true. And I think, I don't want to say that it's okay um, because sometimes messes hurt people. But I also think we do more damage trying to pretend we don't have them than by trying to like make them visible so that we can, we can heal and grow. So, um, and, oh, do you want to? Well, I was, I was going to respond by saying one of the podcasts I listened to is a husband and wife team. They are both photographers, um, Chelsea and Tony Northup. And uh, they've been photographers for a long time. <clears throat> they have a 13-year-old daughter. And in one of their recent podcasts, they were saying, you know, they, they, they are professional photographers and videographers. And so they can create things with a high production value. Mm-hmm. And when they, they're astonished now when they talk to their 13-year-old daughter that things with a high production value – 
come across to her and her peers as often inauthentic. As fake. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they noticed the the videos that she produces for TikTok and other um, social media platforms. You know, they're they're shaky and um, the, the lighting might be off, uh, but those are the ones that people gravitate to. And I, mm-hmm. I think there's something uh, to be said for the church being a holy mess. Mm-hmm. You know? And what you said reminded me of the Israelites in the desert, right? They yeah. are, they're, they're God's people. They are beloved, and yet they are a mess, and they are constantly getting it wrong, and they're constantly complaining, and God still provides for them miraculously um, manna yeah. and water from a rock. And, you know, one of the gifts of these pandemic years is being in a place where we once again have to walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah. And when we, when we're in that kind of season, when we're in that kind of place where we, we must walk by faith, one of the things that gets exposed is our lack of faith. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But, but also mm-hmm. the goodness and faithfulness of God. And we mm-hmm. see both. And if, if, if you can hold both of those things together, personally, I think that has a way of energizing and encouraging growth. Like, oh, yeah. I am a mess. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to present myself as someone who has it all together. Yeah. And yet God is incredibly faithful and good. Yeah. And I think like it's really important. I mean, I think it is the concept of paradox, right? Like you have to be able to believe two things at the same time that in many ways are mutually exclusive because I mean, when I say that, and I think the wilderness thing is a, the, the period of Israel in the wilderness is such a great example of that. Um, like when I talk about being a holy mess, like some of the ways that I am a mess, that Chardet is a mess, that our community is a mess, like it's not cute. It's not like, yes. oh, it's wine o'clock, who cares? Like, no, I mean, there are things that we need to grow in maturity. And I was telling you today, like, I just am like utterly failing at discipline right now. And it's not cute. It's not cute. So it's not just a matter of being like, well, I am who I am, so whatever. But also holding intention with the fact that holiness still abides in the midst of our real brokenness instead of our fake perfection. And I think just thinking about Israel's time in the wilderness and just thinking about in scripture itself, how that memory of that time is so ambiguous that you have, I, I always get them mixed up, but I think it's, you, you have Ezekiel remembering that time in the wilderness as this time of like perfection and this idyllic time when the people depended on God and God was present with to the people and there was no temple cult to like distract and religion to separate. And so he recognizes that as kind of like the zenith of people's faithfulness with God. And then Jeremiah is like, y'all have been turning away from God since the very beginning and you were full of bunk then and you're full of bunk now and you ain't never been faithful for a day in your life and that, you know, and, and you want to say like, well, how, I think, especially when you first come to reading scripture with your sort of Western dualistic mind, mm-hmm. you're like this, like, well, which one? which one, right? I mean, were they like beautifully faithful and that was a honeymoon time or were they just rebellious and awful? And it was, you know, and the answer is both. 
Like Mm -hmm. both are true. And I think that's the thing about being a holy mess is that like we are both, we, we have real work and healing and growing that we need to get about our father's business and it matters. And also God is meeting us where we are and we don't need to do it from a spirit of anxiety or, or fear and that the wilderness time can be both a honeymoon and an affair. And that is true for us now as well. And that does not make sense. And I mean, I just want to fall back on my favorite line, which is I did not write the Bible, (laughs) like not a single word of it. And yet it's there. And those, you have to hold on to both of those things. And I think the more, the deep, the closer we get to the goodness and the mystery of God, the more clearly we see that two things can be true at once in a way that is not syncretism or dualism. It just is. So anyway, well, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about Juneteenth that's coming up in a few weeks. And, um, you know, Juneteenth is the oldest celebration of the abolition of slavery in this country. Uh, what was it, 1862, President uh, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. 1863, Congress passed the 13th Amendment, um, abolishing slavery. Except? Well, the news did not get to... Oh, I was going to say in the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery except in incarceration. Yes. The, the, the news of, of, of the end of slavery did not reach... Well, it just took it took a while for the news to spread, and so I think. In, oh, wait, wait. Yes. Can I just pause? Pause. Okay. Because I think it's important to note that it wasn't luck or like randomness that prevented the news from spreading. Like it was the system of white supremacy. It, it was people with power to control access to information and to set the law in their communities who knew what had happened and what was legal and what was illegal and immediately switched from, you know, I'm following the law to I'm not following that law. Yeah, and, and, even, and even when the news arrived, um, there was um, uh, a violent attempt to... Um, keep it from going into effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But in, what, 1865, June of 1865, um, um, the Union Army reached Galveston, Texas, and announced the end of slavery to some 250,000 enslaved Africans. And um, since then, uh, on the 19th of June, uh, thus the Juneteenth, Black people have celebrated the end of slavery, one, with worship, uh, thanksgiving to God, uh, acknowledging that this is the work of the Lord, uh, also with um, just gathering as families and communities, uh, but also um, it's a time to remember history because yeah. most white people I know uh, did not hear, really know about Juneteenth until like recently. It, it, it was really in the media a lot uh, following uh, the George Floyd uh, murders uh, that, that summer. 
Um, but for us, for many of us, it's been a time just to remember that history and to uh, think about both how far we have come and how far we have to go. And so it, it, Juneteenth is certainly something that's not uh, new in my life. Yeah, can I, I ask you a question about that? Did sure. you grow up celebrating Juneteenth? Not in formal ways, like, okay, you put it on the calendar and then you have an event. Mm -hmm. not, not with events, but certainly um, you are a conscious of it. You are aware. I As mean, a I, child. I, I don't remember a time okay. when I did not know about Juneteenth. Yeah. 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 And so, um, and it, perhaps it is because, um, you know, my family uh, is out of um, – Central Mississippi. I was born in um, one of the first uh, towns uh, founded by freed slaves in in the state of Mississippi. So I and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer um, of the Civil Rights Movement was a neighbor of my parents, and so I think that was just part of our yeah. world. And so, yeah, there was never a, a, I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of Juneteenth, even though it was not an event on the calendar. It's just interesting because we were talking about this last week at the Grove and um, was in a conversation with several black women. And there was just a real diversity of people's experiences with Juneteenth in, among the black community as well, which I think sometimes white people don't realize is that some people have this great, privilege of growing up with that awareness of history and then I was talking to one member of my church and she's like I've been in black churches all my life and I never heard of you know this that was not part of um what what we learned um so anyway I just I think that's interesting I think part of it depends on where you grow up in the country yeah um mm -hmm. like for example if you let's say your family is deeply rooted in the northeast mm-hmm Right, that's not the same story, right? Because yep. it it took a while for the news to travel south, um, right. and so um, yeah. Um, so where where I am now is I'm trying to get my head around, you know, serving as an African American pastor of a historically white congregation, how to bring white saints in, um, how to bring them into the story in a way that allows them to both see the history and to celebrate the liberation. Um, and right now, I'm just sitting with the, um, the reality that slavery as an institution, of course, was harmful to my ancestors, those enslaved Africans. But also, I, I think one of the things that white people miss is the harm done to white humanity mm -hmm. uh, in the system mm -hmm. of slavery. And if, if I can find a way to communicate that, then Juneteenth is um, a, a celebration that we can, we can all embrace. I'm not there yet, but that's what I'm wrestling with, and that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because part of being um, a white person trying to follow Jesus is figuring out how to how to own the whole truth of your history and your generational and ancestral history and how to um, be um, 
be a good neighbor, um, be a good brother, be a good sister. And so like, and, and not, um, come in and, I mean, I know this sounds like jargon. I, I understand that there are probably, especially white people who roll their eyes when they hear me say what I'm about to say. And I get it, but it, but it's true. <laughs> like, um, not to come in and center ourselves in every story because I think, and I can recall years ago, I mean, I, I probably obviously did not grow up knowing anything about Juneteenth and certainly not celebrating it. Um, but I did in the course of just preparing for sermons, I learned about Juneteenth probably 10 years ago. I can remember thinking like, Oh, this is such an interesting, cause just the concept of, I mean, that, that sounds so clinical to call it a concept, but, and so that I'm just acknowledging that these are real people's lives, but sort of the spiritual concept of being free, but not knowing it. Oh, absolutely. Is such yeah. a That'll powerful, right? Well, and I did, right. And yeah. I can look na- back now about preaching about Juneteenth and like preaching a sermon series on Galatians or something. And now I just think, Oh, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I said in particular, but I'm uncomfortable about maybe the way I might have used that story as a preaching illustration without really digging into the larger context of like, what does it mean for me as a white person to use that story as a preaching context? And like, obviously it wasn't that the people in the enslaved people in Texas didn't know they were free. It was that they were lied to, right? That the whole systems of oppression were, were conspiring deliberately to um, rob them of their freedom. Right. And so like, it's not a one-to-one comparison at all to say a white Christian who believes that they are um, condemned to works righteousness, but really isn't right. Like it's just not, it's not the same. And so I think, I mean, and it just makes me think about, I 100% um, as a, as a white person and a white Christian, the, the older I get and the braver I get about facing the whole truth about um, like our nation and the fact that I can say whatever I want to say about what my ancestors did or didn't do, but it doesn't absolve, it doesn't change the ways that my life has been shaped by the institutions that shaped this nation. So it's just kind of a cheap out to be like, well, my hands personally are clean, so whatever. I mean, and so just living with the reality of what what that means and and how I make sense of it and how I teach my daughters to make sense of who they are as white people bearing all of that and and so the more I grow with that the more I see that like obviously the people who need to be centered in that story are the people who were enslaved but the people who enslave who were enslavers you know they thought it was good and it was evil, right? And not just evil to your point, not not just evil to the people they were enslaving, although that would be enough. But the deep irony is it, it was poison, right? Like they were they were manufacturing their own poison. And so to say like, yes, I grieve that, I mean, we were just talking on the run that like there are ways that interactions, lots of ways that interactions in the churches that we serve today are... Um, shaped and harmed and just broken because 
of the different histories that we carry as black American Christians and white American Christians and Latinx American Christians and the way that they've shaped our experiences and our expectations that when we are in a community and everyone is sincerely saying like, yes, we know we belong to God and we belong to one another and reconciliation is a fruit of the kingdom. And it is hard because we don't know or don't want to know the depth of one another's pain, particularly white Christians who, who really want to say, well, if there is a conflict in the church in 2022, it's got nothing to do with the history of chattel slavery in this country. And the fact is, I understand how much people want to believe that, but it's not true. Like that is the destructive power of that empire evil is that it is still dividing us from one another and creating a real, a real um, woundedness so that we can't just walk in and be like, oh, I'm sure this was all just meant for the best. Like that's not, that's not a reasonable expectation to have of one another because of the woundedness that we all carry because of the ways that the spirit of oppression has run the table in America for so long and a spirit of blindness about it. So like we can't heal from it if we can't talk about it. And quite literally, we are living in a nation where we are outlawing talking about our history, but protecting the rights of people. So you can't talk about our history in a Texas school, but you can own a gun that'll allow you to come in and shoot up all the students. Like that is just... those are two true things. Like we are more afraid of history than we are of gun violence. And the reason we cling to our guns is because we're so afraid that if we tell the truth about our history, we're going to massacre each other. Well, and I also think uh, for way too many white Christians, there's just a failure, a failure of imagination, right? So on the one hand, we read the scripture And one of the great celebrations of scripture is in the book of Exodus when God brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is drowned and Miriam and others grab tambourines and they sing and they celebrate. And for the rest of scripture, throughout scripture, that moment is lifted up as a point of celebration of God's delivering power. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, who do not have an Israelite or Jewish background, we can identify with that moment of liberation. Um, As an African-American, I could probably, I don't know, celebrate Bastille Day because I can imagine what it's like to be oppressed and then liberated, right? So, um, I it is challenging for me to understand how white Christians just fail to see the what I, what I understand as the simple story of a group of human beings who were oppressed and then liberated and the joy yeah. of that. But I think the problem is because we as white Christians still feel so much guilt and shame Mm -hmm. that we are every voice around us is saying that wasn't you. You didn't do that. It wasn't bad. You have to understand it at the time. Like, because we can't, we literally are told we are, we shouldn't feel guilty about it, 
But when we hear the story, like any human being would say, I mean, when we tell the story of the Exodus, we everyone identifies with the Hebrews. No one is like, no, the Egyptians are not the heroes of that story. And I think when right. you tell the story of slavery in America, white people are in the role of the Egyptians. And so we just don't want to tell the story because we don't, you know, we, we don't know how to make sense of ourselves in that role. And even though as Christians, we have a whole way of life that helps people say like, hey, if you were caught up in death before, welcome to humanity. Now Jesus has graciously forgiven you and invited you into new life. All you need to do is repent and turn away, like acknowledge the, you know, and, but, but because we're told, well, it wasn't bad. Right. I mean, like literally what we hear over and over again is it wasn't bad. It didn't happen. It wasn't important. It didn't really shape this nation. Everything would be, you know, so I just think as white, like people whose ancestors were enslaved or massacred, they have wrestled with the history of that. But white people for generations have just been told you don't need to think about that because it was okay. But you can't think about it and believe it was okay. And so because we haven't grieved it and we don't know what to do with our guilt and, and I think white churches have really failed white people either by saying you don't have to think about that or I think there are some white churches who just are so, I, I think, overcorrecting to say like there's a difference between white people and whiteness but I mean, I know of trainings like in the city where, you know, people come into sacred spaces and learn about whiteness and basically walk away just being like, well, I'm a terrible, horrible person and there's no good in me. And all I need to do is just feel horrible for the rest of my life to make amends, right? There's no good news of the gospel. So it's either, you know, the good news of the gospel without sin or just sit in your sin for forever. We don't have a way to tell the story and be able to you know, just live with our inherited part of that story. But one thing I noticed the other day, which I love, and I'd never seen it before, is I was reading in Exodus, um, in Exodus 12, which is the actual Exodus, and um, and um, the, you know, Pharaoh, the, the plague happens, and Pharaoh says in 12, like, just go, <laughs> leave, you know, go worship the Lord as you've requested, take your flocks and herds as you said, go and bless me. Like that's the last thing he says to Moses is you bless me because this has happened. Um, and then a little bit later, um, so the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth and they were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And then verse 38 of chapter 12, many other peoples went up with them. And it's so interesting. It's like hidden in here, but they're clearly non-Hebrew people who said, I don't want to be part of this empire system of being oppressed or being an oppressor, right? There were people who said, I'm not ethnically one of them, but I want to be part of this new thing that God was doing. And always in the history of the Hebrew people is, and the history of God and people is just, again, no standards, right? Like anybody who wants to come and follow belongs. Well, and the call um, 
of Israel was to be a light to the nations. Correct. So, but I just think it's so interesting in this story is mm-hmm. this idea that from the very beginning in that preeminent liberating moment, which which a lot of biblical scholars say is like, you know, Genesis is prologue. Exodus is the start of the Hebrew Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so, so in that moment, which is the first, you know, arguably the first time that God really reveals God's self and God's heart and God's plans for humanity and says, you're going out of this way of life into this new way of life. It's not like all of the Egyptians are condemned and consigned to always stay in that role. Like you don't have to hold on to a culture that is, that you know is death dealing. You can leave with the people who are being liberated. And, and I think that's, I think what white people need to understand is like, there's a role for us in this story and it's a role of people who, yes, like our ancestors were oppressors, whatever else they were. And that's not all they were, but they were that. And we can't be in a reconciled community with people who have suffered great harm until we can sit with the truth of that and say it without trying to excuse it or qualify it or justify it, but to just say, like, this was not the will of God for humanity. And in this area, my ancestors were sinners. And, and again, everybody's ancestors were sinners, right? Like that's just a part of being human. But I think when we just can't acknowledge that because we've been taught to be so proud of, of a story that isn't, you know, I I was thinking that I was watching Carrie's little kindergarten promotion this week and such a dummy because I just really like got very teary towards the end of it and it's not because I'm sad that my daughter is graduating from kindergarten although I have some bittersweet moments but because you know that all these kids are in this room and it is like I'm hearing like nine different languages spoken around me and these children are up on stage and um just you know, there, I would say the largest ethnic group in the room was African American, but then there are Africans and there's Latinx kids and there's Indian kids and South Asian kids and Asian kids and some white kids. And, and they're standing up on the stage and they're singing this song from the greatest showman called a million dreams. And so they're standing there singing like a million dreams are keeping me awake. And I'm dreaming about the world that could be the world I want to make. And like seeing these little five-year-olds like holding hands and singing about the dream they have to make a world together and how beautiful it'll be. I'm like, that is just so beautiful and sacred. And it moves me to tears because frankly, as a white person growing up in the seventies, like I thought that's what America already was. Mm. And I was told that that's what America always had been and always would be, that America was the land of the free and the home of the brave, and it's always a place where we're a melting pot, melting and it's a pot. place where everybody comes together, and they can be who they are, and they can be welcomed and accepted, and we're all treated justly, and there's liberty and justice for all. And I really believed that. And so then to get to a point where you start to see like, oh, there were so many stories that I was not told, and and that is not ever who America has been but it still could be who we become right like it, that we could 
if that were those were really if we if we became who the nation we thought we already were like we could be a space where people of different ethnic backgrounds come together with a shared value of liberty and justice yeah and, and it is a reminder to me that evil is a a response a pushback against the good mm -hmm. right you get this good creation it is very good and the serpent in the garden mm -hmm. it wasn't the serpent first it the serpent is responding to this good creation and in this resurgence of racism that we see in the country we need to be mindful that it is simply pushback against the good that is happening just like in 1865 with the liberation of african americans um and again in the civil rights movement there is the pushback of racism, the pushback of groups like the Klan. So now, after um, the presidency of Barack Obama, after so many black women now have um, uh, graduated from universities and are doing great, powerful, wonderful things in the world, it should not surprise us that we see this um, resurgence of racism. We just need to keep in mind that one, it will not have the last word, and even though it it feels, um, it just feels like it's suddenly taking over and everywhere, it is not. And right. I think we have to see it in the proper perspective because it's so painful and so hard to deal with. It can seem as if it's winning. Right, and I think that what is is happening among other things right now is that for many white people for the first time are actually beginning to hear the stories and center the stories that haven't been centered and feel the grief and pain and regret and it you know it's and if it's true that there are stages of grief right there's there's denial <laughs> there's anger right Right. There's all there's all right. sorts of things. Sadness and I think and, and it's and it's 400 years overdue. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. it, and I understand that, like for my children and and we have a lot of conversations about what does it mean to be white? And is it mm -hmm. bad that I'm white? And mm -hmm. what you know, and, and like those are painful conversations. And I think, you know, the part of me that just wants my kids to be happy all the time just wants to like push them away and like, yeah. you don't have to think this way. I don't want you to wrestle with your identity. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and I do tell them those things. And also like, yeah, it's hard that there are people who don't trust you and there's a reason, right? Mm -hmm. It's not because they have hate. It's not reverse racism. And yeah. Because <laughs> the lie is that what's happening is that now Black and brown people are seeking to replace white people. Yeah. And what's been done to us, we will now do that. That's the lie. So that's how the enemy can get white people in a place of fear to keep the present systems of racism in place. In place. And I think to just to say, like, if, if you're white and it's so overwhelming and it is so sad and there is so much guilt and shame and grief. And I think the reality is in... Um, we need to feel that. And then I think because where those feelings are so overwhelming and so uncomfortable, especially for those of us who think, well, following Jesus is supposed to make me happy and supposed to make me peaceful. And then when Jesus leads us into relationships with people whose real stories 
bring up all kinds of deeply painful and just unbearable truths and force us to re-examine like how we see institutions that gave us a lot of pride and joy, like that is not comfortable. That's really painful. And we think, well, this must be wrong. This must be anti-Christ to say like, no, Jesus is calling us into reconciliation. And, and if my feelings are more important to me than the real pain and grief of my brother and sister, if I'm not even curious about that, and I just want to say like, you, that's not true because I say so. That's not true because it makes me feel bad. I mean, that's just, that, that is not the spirit of Christ seeking love and reconciliation. So to be able to say like, I have to sit with this pain as a white person. And then when I think, well, what do I do? I'm like, well, first what I need to do is just when I feel sad to say like, yeah, I, of course I feel sad because I'm not a monster. And will I feel grief and regret? And I notice that and I'm like, of course I feel grief and regret because that was a horrible, evil thing that happened. And when I feel afraid about like, how can people that I loved and people that I see as I've seen as good and people that I've studied their writings and learned that they were, did good work in the world, how could they have been a part of something so evil to go like, well, because people are more than one thing. And that makes me feel uncomfortable to notice that about the people I raised to think of as heroes. That makes me feel uncomfortable, but I'm also like, okay, that means I can live with a deep humility of knowing my own deep frailty, moral frailty and failability, not because I'm white, because I'm human. And how I know that the center of my life needs to be Christ and Christ alone, because people are deeply prone to sin and error. And yes, my ancestors too. And then to be able to say, if I need to, you know, I can't just rush past these feelings. I need to be able to sit with them and recognize that they are a healthy response to horrific evil, much in the way that we don't try to rush past our feelings around the Holocaust, right? Like we're not seeking to contextualize that. And to, so to say, what we see and feel is right grief for the horrific extermination, systemic mass extermination of people who mostly happen to be white is also what we should feel and how we should honor and reverence and ponder and wonder about the mass extermination and systemic brutality of people who were not white. Mm -hmm. And to notice that gap and just say like, oh, the peace that I have with chattel slavery and the um, moral discomfort I will always have with the Holocaust, should I should get curious about that and bring it before the Lord and then recognize that like it is not new news to God that we are trapped in sin and that's why we need a savior and we have one, but we need to be following our savior and not the institutions that purport to speak for God or purport to be the sole authorities um, who are dispensing the truth in a, at a rate that they can stand. Like yeah. nobody owns Jesus. Wow. Nobody owns Jesus. Nobody <laughs> owns Jesus. But I do love, I, I think part of um, a really helpful thing about how do white people understand mm -hmm. um, Juneteenth I mean, I do like that. Just there's a whole world inside that verse of Exodus twelve thirty eight about what does it mean for other peoples to come along 
and to know that they're in the story, but they're not at the center of the story. And that's okay, because the center isn't really a more important place to be than any other place. Like, we just need to be in the story, and um, and we will be. And if we keep following Jesus, we'll keep walking through our grief and pain and suffering, and we and healing will happen, and we will grow. And it won't always be as hard as it is right now, or at least it won't consistently be as hard as it is right now. It won't only be as hard as it is right now. Um, so we should stop talking. We should? I mean, I think so, because I wanted to talk about conflict, but we'll have to do that another week, and we're preaching the same text We this are weekend. preaching the same text this week, Psalm 1. We're going to... Because we're, we're both doing a sermon series on the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. life with the Holy Spirit, and we, we planned it together. And this week we're going to be trees planted by water. and Yes, and what does it mean to meditate on the law of God in the context of living a spirit-filled life? Yeah, I was going to say ultimately it's about how to cultivate intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I think for us as inheritors of the Protestant tradition, in really right and life-giving ways we have centered Scripture, <laughs> um, which is great. But scripture can become an idol just like any other good gift from God. And so how do we receive um, the gift of revelation and the gift of God's word and not, I mean, I think you were saying in the walk, like not as an object, mm-hmm. um, but as a, in the case of scripture, as, as a revelation that opens the door for us to be in relationship with God Almighty, but it does not replace relationship with God Almighty. And that is a, um, a really important thing to um, tease out. And also that life with the Holy Spirit does not displace um, the place of Scripture in our lives. It's not like, well, I have the Holy Spirit now, so I don't need the Word of God. It has nothing for me. Yes, and I think the difference between us and folks... Um um, that existed when Psalm 1 was written, you and I have copies of the text. I mean, we can we can right. get a copy of the Bible and put it in our pocket. So for them, I mean, there was no, you know, scroll that they could just take and, you yeah. know, travel with or, you know, just have every day. And so they had to, at least in my estimation, I, I, I need to study this more, but, uh, but I'm thinking that they had to set parts of it to memory, mm-hmm. not as um, an exercise of proving anything, but right. simply because they delighted in the text and loved the text. And because it was memorized, so much of it was memorized, then as they traveled from here to there, they could just think about it. They could mm-hmm. meditate on it, which is really different than having this book and right. you're in an Uh, you're having a conflict or a discussion or an argument and you want to say, well, chapter one, verse three says, and it proves my point. Right. right? And so we use the book as a book of rules against people, against others. We're trying to prove something instead of this revelation that is a gift from God that we delight in that causes us to see and um, savor the goodness of God. Well, and I also think the other difference, and I'm reading this book um, called 
words in a culture of lies or caring for words in the culture of lies by Marilyn McIntyre. And it's really good. But one of the things she's talking about, which I really appreciate in the context of this conversation is just like, we live in a moment in time where there just are so many words around us all the time, all the time. And on the one hand, I appreciate that there's a, there's a freedom in not having sort of a gatekeepers deciding who's allowed to, put words into the world and whose words matter and who's like that, that is a good thing. And also there are still powerful forces determined saturating and oversaturating the word, the world. And I think even, or especially as people following Jesus in the 21st century, um, it is such a gift that we have direct and unmediated access to the text. And it is such a gift that we have at the touch of a button access to just you know the the saints throughout time and really anointed preachers and teachers and spiritual guides I mean it's wonderful and also we have very little blank space and we have very little silence and we have very little unmediated access to the text and so I think you know our ancestors they had people interpreting the text for them, for sure. But if they married, memorized Psalm 1, and then you're living in a world that is largely silent, right? And so you have Psalm 1 in your head and and in your heart. And you you maybe remember the words of whatever teacher or rabbi or, or you know, coming down the line, even priest or whoever has told about it. But mainly what you have are the words themselves and then a lot of blank space just to have no one else telling you what those words mean or what what you should do with them it's just the words and you and the spirit and that changes you know to me that's meditating right that's really good yeah so i think that is um and i was Somebody reminded me that Eugene Peterson, and I want to do this. You should help me do this. I start doing it, and then I quit because I'm really undisciplined, and everybody pray for me. But apparently Eugene Peterson had this practice where he memorized seven psalms, and then part of his spiritual discipline was every day of the week he would rise and say one of those seven psalms, probably in Hebrew, right? But just to think about like what a heart imprint that makes to come back and then it is again it's an unmediated or it's a solely spirit spirit mediated encounter with the text like i'm not reading a book and the scripture is used i'm not listening to a sermon when the scripture is used i'm not and that's why and i think we're going to talk about this too is i think it's really helpful to have a a discipline of reading scripture that is not part of a med- a book of meditation. I mean, that's fine. Like read a daily meditation, do whatever you want to do. But so often we get more focused on the, on the words that are interpreting the text to us than the actual yes. words that are being interpreted. And that's just a real danger. And so the gift of something like the, the daily lectionary is that it's just, it's just, Hey, look at these six texts today. And then they are going to, have a conversation between one another or you're going to notice things and it's fine if you want to go and look up something. And I don't want to take for granted the fact that we've been so blessed 
to have this training that means when I pick up the book of Exodus, I really do understand the context of it within the whole of scripture. So I have a lot of meaning to bring to it, but also the longer you're in this life, the more meaning you, I mean, as I've said before, like, I mean, we have one book, so it's really not a ridiculous idea that over the course of a lifetime, we could become deeply familiar with lots of it. And well, anyway, I'll shut up. But I, I think having unmediated access to the text so that the text itself becomes like a meeting place for your spirit and God's spirit is really life-changing and That's giving. really good. We got to remember that for Sunday. Say, write it down because well, <laughs> I won't remember it. <laughs> and everything you just said just brought back some things in my own life, my early Christian life. Like I memorized um, the first half of Isaiah chapter six. And I remember I used to just drive and just say those words. And even to this day, I have those words in my memory. And that's been, that's been 20, 25 years. You know, you want to know the dumbest thing though, that happened to me. So like I had this really beautiful practice of meditating on scripture and like then thinking through my day and then praying and, um, and when I was a junior in college, I was studying in Scotland. And so I had gotten connected with like the local Christian college students group, which was great. And I was just so, um, you know, just because of not growing up in a Christian family, like I was just so unsure. I was just always looking for someone to tell me if I was doing it right. Yes. And so, and you know, people would talk to you about scripture and prayer and quiet time and blah, blah, blah. And so I was saying like, oh, yes, I have this and it's really meaningful. And I would do it at night before I went to sleep. And this, I mean, this guy who was maybe a year older than me, but was a peer in all sincerity was like, oh, you can't do it at night. You have to do it in the morning. Like you have to do it in the morning before you start your day. Like if you do it at night, then you go to sleep. When you wake up in the morning, it's just not like you just, you got to do it in the morning. And I was like, okay, I've got to do it in the morning. And so I tried to do it in the morning. And of course I couldn't do it in the mornings, right? Like I just, and so I just gave up on it because I could only do it at night. And the people told me that doing it at night was wrong. And so I didn't want to do it wrong and I couldn't do it right. So I just stopped doing it at all for just years and years and years. And so I think that's like such a, such a hard thing about, you know, and I think if I had known that I could listen to my own direct experience of myself, like I knew it wasn't useless and I knew that it was forming me, but I also just really just believed anybody with any position of authority at all. And if they came and said like, yeah, that ain't right. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I'll do better. Wow. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I let it go. So I think even as we talk about like, how do we cultivate intimacy with the Holy Spirit, we got to let people know that like, these are breadcrumbs we're throwing and we're all really different people. And I can tell you things that have in seasons been deeply formative and life-giving for me, but that does not mean that they will be for you. And also it doesn't mean that they won't be right. But I just like, I look back at what I was, I like 20 at the time. And I mean, I could just weep for that young woman who was so sincerely following Jesus and was just so easily, I just, she, 
so believe someone who's like, you're, you're just doing it wrong and it doesn't count. Like, I think that was literally what he said is it doesn't count if you do it at night. And I was like, okay, it doesn't count. Doesn't Sorry. Count. Um, and also, you know, the Lord was more than sufficient. Right. So like nobody don't cry for me, Argentina. I'm fine. But I also think it's really important that we don't give people the idea that there's just one way Correct. and all yes. the other ways are wrong. And if you don't do it this way, then like heaven can't help you because, but I think we just want to like believe in a system instead of trusting the mystery of God, the person of the Holy spirit. Correct. We want a system. We want an it instead of a person mm -hmm. that we relate to. And uh, instead of an organic relationship mm -hmm. that goes through seasons yeah. and that's anyway. So, all right. I said it like 45 minutes ago that we should stop talking. So um, more like five, but, your point still stands. Okay, good. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> we want to encourage you to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, pastored by the great Yolando Hinton, who's trying hard not to cough right now. <laughs> and I'm not making it easy on you. Um, Derida is spelled D-E-R-I-T-A. And you can find their website at deridapres.org. You can worship with them now at 11 o'clock. You can listen to um, Yolando's messages on the uh, Derida podcast on the Podbean website, or you can check out their YouTube channel, or you could just go there on Sunday mornings. Um, and if you want to find out more about what the Lord is doing at The Grove, our uh, website is The Grove. <laughs> Wait, oh what's gosh. happening right now? Like what's happening? Where you can't say the Lord's Prayer anymore because you thegrovecharlotte.org. That's our website. And you can go to our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast. Um, you got to look for the green tree and listen to old messages. You can go to our YouTube channel. Um, and uh, that's The Grove uh, uh, The Grove. Charlotte's YouTube channel <laughs> worship with us on the live stream on the Facebook live stream at 10 or in person at 10 I'm gonna go and learn where I work and um, serve and we will talk to you next week